Hi, this is Paul. Welcome to the Things I Didn't Learn in School podcast. For those of you that are newer to these conversations, the podcasts are one of three things that Still Press puts out. There's also a weekly essay that comes out on Substack. You can sign up for either the free or the paid versions on my website, paulpodolsky.com. And there's also a book, Raising a Thief, and another one that's going to join it soon, Master Minion. And if you enjoy these conversations, I think that you will enjoy the books and the essays as well. And so with that, thanks for listening, and let's get into our conversation. Welcome to Things I Didn't Learn in School. Vitaly is a thoughtful investor and a very thoughtful writer with kind of a unusual life story. So I know about you after reading your book, Soul of the Game, but I think many of our listeners do not. So if you could share a little bit about who you are and your background. So, yeah, so I live in Denver. Um, I run, an, I'm a value investor, a diehard value investor. I run a value investment firm called IMA. I have a wife and three kids. My oldest son is 21 and I have eight, eight and 16-year-old girls. As you can tell from my accent, I'm from Texas. Well, not really, but um, <laughs> I was born in Russia and I moved to Denver in 1991. I got my undergraduate and graduate degrees in finance. And that's, you know, that's that's part of my story. You probably want me to go back m- more into Russia's story. I think depending on the month you left Russia, that was the month I moved to Russia. So we, we might have been crossing over there. I came right after the coup. So in uh, September, October, uh, August, September, September, September right? of uh, 91. Is 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 what I moved there. I remember that day so vividly because so so we left Russia in December of that year. And yeah, uh-huh. uh, nineteen ninety one. Yeah, so I remember that coup so vividly because I remember waking up, turning on TV, and seeing Swan like every the like <laughs> channel, and every channel played uh, Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake, and. I like I was at I was visiting my aunt and my aunt was on a uh, on a business trip so I was with my uncle and uh, he I said what's going on he's like don't you understand it's a coup I'm like how do you know this he's like well look at the TV there's no no programming so there's something wrong with the government and I was so terrified before a reason that was unrelated to you know that was so unique to me I was afraid they're gonna close the country and I would mm. not be able to leave you mm. know. And uh, and that coup ended up being kind of non event, right? They just kind of three days later things were back to normal. Um, but uh, so we left on December fourth, and when we left, we actually left Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And then you know a month later, that's you know that country stopped you know uh, st- uh, stopped existing. In fact, I don't think I'm even I am even a Russian like. You know, like I don't think my Russian citizenship even alive anymore because I never applied for one. And that concept, I mean, it seems we're older now, but I know for younger people, it's a little bit like talking about a typewriter or the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Like the notion that countries themselves aren't stable is one thing if you read about it, another thing if you actually experience it. So you grew up in a place that, not only sort of conceptually doesn't exist, but almost legally, it's it's some ancient relic of the past. Does it make you feel old? Uh, 
you know what makes me feel old? Actually, this war. This war makes me feel old. And let me tell you why. Okay. Because today, Russia is basically bombing Ukrainian cities. Yep. And I never thought I would live in a time when this happens. It's mind-boggling. It is. It is mind-boggling, and you know it's kind of interesting. Um, the the U.S. Russian, equivalent. Sorry, I'm interrupting. The U.S. equivalent would be almost like if New England Air National Guard was bombing Texas, type of thing. That, that's no, that's exactly right. And I, when I was growing up, there was really no difference between Russians and Ukrainians, right? Or Belarusians. It just like. I know, like when I say this, especially if Ukrainians are listening to me now, they get angry at me. Uh-huh. But that's no, that's a you know, please, please don't, because when I was growing up, it was all one nation. It was kind of like it's like Texans and, uh, and Floridians. There was yeah. no really no difference. Yeah. Um, and uh, and they all spoke the same language. You know, they all, you know, Ukrainians had their own language, but really, like. Like, uh, let me just, it's the simplest way to to look at this in this way. So I live in Denver. I have a lot of friends who are from ex-Soviet Union. Uh-huh. For most of them, I don't even know or care if they are from Russia, Belarus, Ukraine, or any other part. Right. Because culturally, we are so similar. Yeah. We watch the same movies, you know, sing the same songs, spoke the same language. So... Now seeing Russia, as you said, like Russia, you know, I'm in Ukraine, is unimaginable for me. And you also, I never thought that I would see the borders in Europe being tried, you know, somebody going to try to redraw the borders in Europe in my lifetime. It yeah. just was something just I never thought would, I would see happen. Yeah. I remember the day vividly, uh, like February 22nd, 23rd of this year. That's amazing. It seems so long ago. And I don't know about you, but I was asking friends and contacts in Russia, mm-hmm. like, do you think that he's going to do this thing? Like, it seems so crazy. Like, there are all these troops on the border. Do you think he's going to do these things? And most of the people I spoke with, not my wife. My wife was like, he's definitely going to do it. He's a psychopath. He's going to invade. Watch out. And I did... But a number of my contacts there were like, it's too crazy. It's a bluff. And that's how much the key has changed in a very short period of time. I, Paul, I wrote an article a week before the invasion saying there's no way it's, he's going to invade. My, I like, I'll, I'll, tell, I'll, I'll take it a step further. I was interviewing an analyst in Kiev. Mm-hmm. So I would, you know, who, who, you know, who lived in Kiev. And he, like on, this, on a February 23rd, him and I were talking. He's like, "I am thinking about soon. I need to leave. Right now, kind of. He has a you know a wife and young kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, I need to leave uh, Ukraine, Kiev, because I may not be able to do it afterwards. But it seems like I have time." Mm-hmm. And he says, "And he's like, yeah, I don't." And I, he said, "I don't think the war was going to happen, but just in case." And one thing I learned actually, and this is almost like a. You have this idea, you know, you know black swans. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the yeah, of course. Swan. This is a kind of a gray swan model and a mental model where whenever you're facing a risk that is on the horizon, but you don't know the timing, mm. and but the consequences are substantial. Yes. It's a, 
you never like you, like a lot of times you're tr- what you're trying to do you're trying to look for the signals mm-hmm. for okay when this happens when it's, I'm I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna react mm-hmm. the problem is you usually never have enough time mm-hmm. at that point yeah, so I'll course. give you a couple examples I'll give you I'll give you one real example I have a very good friend who lives in he lives in Kaliningrad my uh-huh. dear fr- my dear childhood friend his son is 19 years old mm. he so he is ripe age of being basically uh, conscripted into the military. He conscripted, yes. And my friend, basically, what he did, he sent him to Serbia to you know to enroll them. You know, he enrolled him in university in Serbia in July. And if you look in July, there was really no signs that there would be mobilization. Right. And then, if my friend tried to do this. The, you know, the, you know, the day of mobilization, there is no way he could do it, you know, because everybody else would run for the exits at the same time. So, like, that was a very good lesson. Yeah. Like, it's almost like when you live in Florida and there's a hurricane coming towards your way, you probably don't want to buy tickets when you realize it's actually going to land. Yes. So how do you think that as you now look back on your, and I see now all you say, say it makes you feel old because of, this this bloodshed was so incomprehensible. If you look back now, and you, I mean, you've gone through this remarkable first generation experience of growing up in a country that doesn't exist, leaving it for totally understandable reasons, coming here and getting successful, be settled, being successful, retraining on so many different levels. Mm. When you look back on it now, what were some of the biggest things you took away from that period growing up in the Soviet Union? So it's kind of interesting. Let me talk about the positives. Mm-hmm. Okay, because it's you know scarcity. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of value in scarcity. Okay, mm-hmm. but you only understand this uh, when you're confronted with abundance. Yes. Okay. As a society today, we kind of look at abundance. We look at it as a good thing. The problem is, it's it's actually, it could be, okay. But just like scarcity could be a bad thing, could also be a good thing. And same thing with abundance. Mm-hmm. I scarcity makes me appreciate what I have a lot more. Yeah. And like, uh, and what abundance does, it does the opposite. Yes. It makes us, you know, uh, the, the example I love to use is this. It's a, and I actually I talk about this in the book, but let me just, so for the first 18 years of my life, I had Pepsi only once. Yeah. I think I was 15 years old. I remember it was very hot outside. I was in an, an, an APA and I had this drink, and it was, I remember it was like magic. I'm like, I could make a Pepsi commercial. <laughs> but it was like, it was, it, was, it was magic. It was just perfect. It was a perfect drink. And I remember how great it felt. And so that was the only time I had Pepsi or Coke. Um, so then I came to the United States, and then I discovered that I can have Pepsi and Coke all the time. In fact, I can consume it in gallons. And it's incredibly cheap. So I... Over the next three years of my life in the United States, I made up in a consumption for the previous 18 years. Okay. And I remember then I, then I was 21. I was at a village in restaurant and I was and I was in a third refill of Coke. And I realized I can't taste, I can't taste it. I just I can't taste the sugar, I can't taste the taste. It just felt like water. Mm-hmm. This is where I realized that I'm drinking it so much, you know, speaking of abundance that 
I, you know, it's, I don't actually enjoy it anymore. It's actually just, I'm receiving the calories mm. and the sugar and absolutely no enjoyment. So from that point on, I said, I'm only going to have it on big uh, you know, occasions. So for me, would be when I go to see a movie, which I would only do three or four times a year anyway, that's when I would drink Coke or Pepsi. And I tell you, every single time I enjoy it so much more. Mm. So I, I created this artificial scarcity. But my experience is so much great, so much better now. So I ought to talk to that. They bought us the youth. So that, that was a pause of the Soviet Union. What else? Let me see. I, I run out of positives very quickly, but okay. that's okay. <laughs> um, the abundance um, thing, I think, is deep. I want to come back to that in a second. I just want to know if there was what was the biggest negative. Oh my God, there, there's so many. Uh, command control economy, uh, corruption. I started with, you know, talking about how we were all the same. You know, not really. Like, let me modify this. There was a caste. There was a caste system in Russia, mm-hmm. in Soviet Union, and this caste system went like this: If you were Russian, Ukrainian, Belarusian, you were in the high level of caste system. Mm-hmm. If you were, and but then, then there was a like: If you're Georgian, Armenian, or Kazakh, then you were looked upon not as just there was something wrong with you. Yeah. And I'll tell you this. I'm embarrassed to say it took me 30, 40 years to realize that. Like mm-hmm. I only realized about this caste system literally maybe when the war started because I started mm-hmm. to think a lot more about the old Russia. And being Jewish mm-hmm. was not, you know, you were, which actually being Jewish is even funnier because like at least if you are Georgian or Armenian, you look different and you do have a, you do, you know, usually those people spoke with a, you know, with a different, you know, mm-hmm. with a different dialect. Mm-hmm. Okay. They spoke with a different accent. Being Jewish, I can't, like, you can't even tell the difference between a Jewish person and a Jewish person. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, you know, not all the time. And um, so there was no cultural difference really, mm-hmm. but, but it wasn't a, the line six in my passport said it was Jewish. Mm-hmm. And every application uh, my parents filled out that said, what's your nat- what was your nationality? And it's, you know, I had to say I was Jewish. And I every single time I wrote this, I felt there was something wrong with me being Jewish. Mm-hmm. And here's the, here's the interesting part. I did not even know about Jewish religion until I was 18 years old. Mm-hmm. I did not know, like, I always thought of being Jewish as nationality. I never, I didn't even know there was a religion. So this is just, just to explain to listeners, this is very bizarre, but in the Soviet passport, um, because there was no official religion, because the cabinet, it wasn't like somebody who was Russian Orthodox and it said in their passport, they were Orthodox, but they considered Judaism to be a nationality. Yes. So if you were of Jewish, uh, descent in the nationality, as opposed to saying Russian or Ukrainian, they would say Jewish. Yes, and that's that's basic. It's very very bizarre. So you grow up in you grow up in the Soviet Union. You have this notion that is a very stultifying place, and it's your parents' initiative to leave. And then you suffer in addition, sort of losing the country. You have one serious loss too, also, which is loss of the mother when you're when you're when you're young. How did that? Um, how do you think that shaped you? Sort of what's the impact of losing a parent when you're young? So you know, it's what's interesting about this. It was not as dramatic mm-hmm. as, like, I look at it, uh, it was not as dramatic as you would think it would be. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason it was not as dramatic for me, because I don't think my my little brain processed it. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's, a, it's so I, I mean, you know, kind of in a, and 
that is something like as an adult, I look at this and as an adult, I feel like, you know, I think about my kids, you know, losing me and mm-hmm. how it, it's going it's to impact them. But I think there was a, and I visualized that like the way I visualize that versus the way it actually impacted me, it was a lot less like, you know, they think like maybe that day it was very, very dramatic. Maybe that week was very dramatic, but somehow I like, it's almost, there is this outer protection in your brain that protects child from this incredible pain. Mm. So, um, and the way my mom died, so like, um, she died, it was a very weird death because the day after her 50th birthday, she had a headache Mm -hmm. and she was taken to the hospital Mm -hmm. and they diagnosed she has a brain cancer. And so the mother, the mother that I remember that went to the hospital, mm-hmm. that's, that's, that was my mother. Mm-hmm. But then what happened was, then I went on that, my father sent me out on a summer vacation because he had to deal with her. And when I came back, there was this woman at home that, you know, during the summertime, she had a surgery. Uh, when I came back, there was this woman at home who had a gray hair, very short gray hair, mm. who can barely speak. And she kind of was supposed to be my mother, but she looked nothing like her. And, and so the woman who died, and my mom died after maybe three months later, uh, that was September, so she died in October. And the woman who died was that kind of that woman with the gray hair. And so my young brain never processed it. So I still like, so I, and, um, and I was actually, I saw a psychologist about this, uh, right before pandemic. Mm. Uh, and my psychologist said, well, your issue is that you really never have said goodbye to your mom because mm. your mom was kind of, and um, uh, so, you know, I I guess I was spared that it was not as dramatic as it could have been. And also I was blessed that my father kind of stepped in and became a mother and a father to me at the same time. Mm. And he just, you know, and I, and I think that really made a huge difference. Then you come here, and I would say you you know you're you're hardcore banning the Soviet philosophy. And from the book, I would say there's a couple different key elements of. We probably ought to describe what you mean by soul in the game, but a couple different elements of I would say uh, philosophical approach that seems to ground you now. Some of it is professionally the concept of value investing. We probably mm-hmm. ought to explain that. Some of it is your study of uh, obviously being very. Uh, focused on your family, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Some of it is your study and appreciation for Judaism. And then some of it is your study and appreciation for Stoicism. Mm-hmm. This is basically what I'm taking away from the book. So all all four of those things are interesting topics to delve into a little bit. But just before we jump there, one thing on the abundance I just want to check in with you on. I think you're on to something there with uh, the Soviet Union making you really appreciate the concept of abundance, which is, and this this is actually a segue to the conversation about Stoicism, which it seems to me that the market system is by and large so incredibly successful over the last 200 years that are producing stuff mm-hmm. that to actually live a balanced life, which is some of what this book is about, you do need to introduce some sort of asceticism into your life because it's like there's too much food. There's too much information. There's too much. There's all this crazy. And it's and most of the people have lived more like they did in the Soviet Union historically, which is that the vast majority, not royalty, but they didn't have enough. 
And so there's this weird adjustment that you need to make going back and forth between the two systems. When I was in Soviet Union the first time, I wasn't starving, but it was the first time that I experienced hunger. Like I was getting enough calories per day, barely, but finding them was tough. And at the end of the day, I remember when I was invited for a feast and you know that the feasts, if you were inviting a foreigner to table, they'd roll out the spread. It wasn't just like I was happy to see the food. I was seriously hungry by the time I get mm-hmm. there, and I would just mm-hmm. chow. But then you come, you know, back into the states. The big problem is people are overweight, so yeah. it's this. It's it's a very tricky. It's a it's a very tricky dynamic. You know what's kind of interesting? I uh, basically learned now to create this artificially. Like you know, I talked about Coke as one yeah. example, and I started. Uh, you don't eat sweets uh, too. Yeah. Yes, you know, yeah, and that too. But I, I started to create like on Thursdays, and today you and I are talking on Thursday. Uh-huh. I started to, you know, three weeks ago. I said I'm on Thursday. I'm, I'm going to fast. Uh huh. So and so on Thursdays I fast. Mm. Uh, unless you know, unless the entire day, entire day. Uh-huh. So, uh huh. So as I'm talking to you, I haven't eaten today yet, and I'm doing it just to appreciate food more. Mm. And uh. Like I, 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 yeah, I also, you know, and I wrote about this in the book, but I, I like when I'm in Denver, I don't eat carbs or, mm-hmm. or uh, red meat or, or, or sugar. And, uh, but when I travel, I do. Mm-hmm. And I tell you this, you know, this time, whenever I travel, I enjoy ice cream so much mm-hmm. more and I enjoy mm-hmm. the red meat so much more and bread. Mm-hmm. So I think we almost have to like, well, at least I'm speaking for myself right now. I find that I need to do this for me to appreciate life a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Like, and I and I find that I'm very not very good at moderation. So I can't have a little like when I used to smoke, mm-hmm. uh, and when I smoked, I couldn't just smoke a little bit. I smoked like almost two packs a day or something like this. Some uh-huh. some okay. So I can't. I'm not very good at moderation. So I have to be what I call half binary. Either uh-huh. I'm doing it or I don't. I can, uh-huh. There is no middle ground for me. So these different elements here, uh, you can take them in any order you want. There's the, there's the there's the element of the you know what is value investing that way of looking at the world. Um, there's the stoicism element, mm-hmm. and then uh, clearly classical music is important to you in writing. And mm-hmm. then and then there's the you know there's there was a religious element that was curious to me just because that transformation of looking at it from a nationality to a religion. Okay. So let's so value. So let's talk about value investing. I'm gonna to try to do it in a very concise way, if it's possible. Uh-huh. Okay. So value investing. It's actually it's a philosophy. Uh-huh. You know, it's a it's basically, and this philosophy has been really kind of you know, put into place by ben, Benjamin Graham, kind uh-huh. of the founder of value investing. Yep. And if you know, and uh, it's and there are some principles. Foundational principles are that I call them the six commandments of value investing. You, uh, I'm not going to give you a few, but uh-huh. you know, just uh, for the same time. You look at companies, not at uh, pieces of paper, but as businesses. So whenever uh-huh. I'm analyzing the company, I have a mindset, would I want to buy this company if I was buying the whole thing? Mm-hmm. Okay, that's number one. Number two, you have a long-term time horizon. Okay. Number three, you're looking for margin of safety. The... Basically, the margin of safety basically means when I'm buying something, I want to buy it to discount to what it's worth because the future may not be end up being as bright as we think it is. You know, uh, that you know that today. Um, 
Mr. Market, you know, is there to serve you, not the other way around. So in other words, you just because the stock price declined, that does not mean this you know, company is worth less. It's just the mm-hmm. market's opinion mm-hmm. of, of what the company is worth has changed. And it's an, and it's very, you know, we have to remind ourselves it is an opinion. So mm-hmm. that's what value investing is. Mm-hmm. Um, historically, it was uh, kind of mislabeled a lot of times, is that buying statistically cheap stocks, that's not, that's not what value investing is. That's a misperception of uh you know of, of value investing because what happens a lot of times people read uh, benjamin graham's book and uh the intelligent investor and instead of getting a uh, philosophy they get a recipe okay buying a stock six times earnings that was a recipe that worked at that point in time but that's just you know that's a that's a something that's you know that's that's not that's not that was not the message of the book Anyway, so that's what value investing is. So pause for a second on the, the this this is important time. One thing I've thought about with that is how that philosophy dovetails with something you were talking about earlier, which is low probability events that can have uh, incredibly serious consequences, like regime shifts would be one of them. Mm-hmm. In other words, you know, there was an active stock market in Russia in the 1850s, right up until 1917. And so it seems like it's really useful in one perspective, that philosophy. But how do you think about you know, those, those uh, additional types of risks? And people who don't know, it's basically, if you look at, if you compare U.S. stocks and Russian stocks in the 19th century and early 20th century, the Russian stocks basically did roughly as well as the U.S. stocks. Not that big of a difference. Yeah. But of course, if, you know, once the revolution was there, boom, you're done. And so a lot of these things that are a lot of the historical work on, you know, the, the, that book, I forget that. Yeah, yeah Jeremy, uh, Jeremy Siegel. Yeah, yeah. yeah, if you look at that in countries outside the U.S., it's a disaster. Yeah. And the reason is, is that you get these regime shifts, which is literally what brought you from the Soviet Union here, in a way. Paul, I don't think you have to go this far. You can go eight months ago. Uh-huh. If you owned, if you were an American investor, you owned Russian stocks. Yeah. Now you don't own them anymore. Yeah, you're done. Yeah, so, so, um, I think the yes, yeah, so I think you. This is why you have to be diverse. I mean, I think this is kind of the point of diversification, right? Uh-huh. You have to be diversified, and you have to be thinking about those risks. You know, like there's those, like when I look at microeconomics, I think of it from a climate changing. Like, I, I don't. I spend very little time looking at what the Federal Reserve is going to do next. Uh-huh. So I spend, in other words, I'm spending very little time on weather. Uh-huh. I'm spending a lot of time thinking about climate-changing events. Uh-huh. Like what me, do you mean like, by that? Meaning that Fed, Federal Reserve is the center center point of the way I invest. So this is interesting. Well, I think about this. For me, it would be um, deglobalization. Okay. Or selective deglobalization. Uh-huh. Uh Like runaway inflation. Uh-huh. Or, or you know, the trade, you know, kind of escalation with China. Uh-huh. Like, you know, the, I, you know, I think about, the, you know, this, you know, so those are things, or the, uh, another event I've been worrying about for the last 10 years was the uh, Chinese bubble, uh, housing bubble. So uh-huh. those are things I kind of worry about and try to make adjustments in the portfolio. But guess what? If I'm investing in, let's say, just, just let's say I'm buying just U.S. companies, uh-huh. I'm still making an assumption that there is a continuity of our, economy and and so let me ask you a question on that because obviously there's there's it's 
that's become at least a debatable question now, yeah. more than it has been in many, many years. I mean, during the Civil War, you'd say it was a more debatable question. But does that factor into your thinking now? And have you thought about any sort of logical way of thinking about those risks? I think this is a, at this point, it's not even a race one. Uh-huh. I mean, it's, it's like, like, it's a like the risks I just you know the risks I de- described before they were kind of gray swans. Uh-huh. This is not a gray swan, you know, at this point in time. But I tell you, like I say this, and we kind of stared at this, this for about two days in UK when there when, when so so I, I you know I think it's if this if something like this happens I think we we have. It's almost like, you know, it's one of those things almost have a, like a nuclear war. How do you invest for the nuclear war scenario? I don't. I just, you know, when it happens, it's not going to matter what, you know, how, you know, what stocks I hold. So, so it's sort we, of like some, I mean, the Russia thing, you can diversify away by getting out of Russia. Yeah. The, uh, but you're saying basically this risk is un, undiversifiable. No, absolutely. I mean, if U.S. collapses, if, you, if U.S. economy collapses, there's mm-hmm. no place to hide. I mean, you, the only thing is going to work for you is a, guns and canned food. I mean, and a lot of guns. Let's turn to the writing part of it. So there's writers, there's investors, and then there's investors and write. Yes. It's sort of like a subtopic. And you're one of those. So I want to talk to you about the writing practice. And then I also, one of the most interesting things to me of your book, and I think I marked it here, was this page. This is on page 176. Uh, You said, the Stoics viewed money as an external advantage. The goal, however, is not to acquire as many external advantages as possible, but to use them wisely. When we think of wealth, the word that usually comes to mind is more. But the Stoics flip traditional wisdom upside down. Their insight is that once our basic needs are satisfied, the easiest way to create wealth is to want less, which is it's a little bit back to this abundance thing. So talk to me for a second about why do you think you're right and then when you're running your business, you know, you've got this, you've got this great money management business, but you also talk about in the book about explicitly making choices about not growing it uh, as fast as some opportunities might offer because you're looking for more balance. So that's kind of a number of questions wrapped into one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Start with why do you write? Okay. Why I write? So, you know, it's kind of interesting, uh, I guess. I forget who said it, but a lot of your life you can kind of explain backwards. Uh-huh. And so, so why I write, it's easy for me now to explain it backwards because when I started writing, that's not why I started writing. Um, but why I keep writing? That's that's probably that's probably a better way to explain it. Um, so I find is that writing is one of the most important things that happened to me as a human being. It's up there on being a parent. Um, and the reason I say this because I find that my my brain, my mind, is very very chaotic. And when when I write, I basically for two hours a day, and I write every day from five to seven roughly. Um, I sit and I focus and I organize my thoughts. And what it is, what writing is really, it's your conscious mind and subconscious mind getting connected. What I found that, like a lot of times when I'm finished, when I finish writing, I look at my essay, and am I surprised reading this as a person who is going to read it as well? 
uh-huh. because a lot of times I did not know that I knew, that I thought that. It's oh, the this it's this uh, process. It's this kind of uh, focused uh, time, just thinking about this. You know, f- you know force these ideas to come out, and um, so writing made me a much better thinker, which I really needed. Uh, because I'm, uh, my thoughts are just complete chaos without it. So that's that's what that's why that's so that's why I write. What was the, uh, the other part of your question? And then within this, it's sort of like you could have pursued with your money management firm. You could have pursued growth at all costs. Yeah. And you wrote at one point here that you decided not to do that, and probably making room for writing is part of it. What was your thinking? Because I think that that's. Like that's an interesting choice. Like you have a successful money management firm. For people who don't know, money management, there's two things. There's how many assets under management you have and mm-hmm. how uh depends on the fee structure, but also how good an investor you are. But yeah. what it means is, is a lot of people, there's a huge incentivize. If I can manage money well, if I can manage a thousand dollars well, well, there's virtually no difference between doing that and managing a hundred thousand versus a million, versus 10 million, just keep going and going in the fee scale. So there's an incentive system that's pretty strong to grow. I think I find that I look at money as a very secondary. Okay. And after some level, having more money brings very little, like makes, it brings very little happiness. It makes very little difference in my life because I would not change my daily decisions. So if I have a, uh, I don't know, I'll just make up a number, $10 million or $50 million in my bank account, it's not going to make a difference because I'm spending, I don't know, I'm just making $200,000 a year. So what uh-huh. difference does it make? Yes. But also, all my goals are process, uh, uh, they are process-driven goals. Yeah. They are not, like, so the, when I look about building a great firm, yeah. it's not about managing $5 billion. It's about us doing these things, doing great research, providing great customer service, being very operationally efficient and kind of have fun doing all these things. Uh And so it's a, so having a lot more money, it's kind of like empty calories. Like it's a, you know, again, it's a, if I, you know, if I was, you know, if I was starving, you know, I would not be saying this, but I'm not. So after a certain level, it's just, it's, it's not necessarily going to make a difference in my life. Yeah. And it's and in this sense, it's interesting to me. I know it's heretical to say it. It's interesting to me that Warren Buffett is such a folk hero because he also has sort of, to a degree, it's more complicated, but he also sort of has a value tilt, at least to what he's thinking. Yeah. But you cite in the book that he's also so single-minded that his first wife left him and he's just sort of accumulated more and more and more money and he's held out as a sage but if you think about him from sort of living your entire life, it seems like you could look at it from another perspective. I think you're referring to my favorite chapter, and I, the, the, let me tell you why it's my favorite chapter. Not the because I love the title of the chapter, and it's I think the chapter is "Go ahead, covet your neighbor's wife." Uh-huh. <laughs> um, no, but um, no, I think that's right. I think one of the important books I ever read, like the one that had a huge impact on me, was Alice Schroeder's Snowball. And a snowball is basically authorized biography about Warren Buffett. Uh-huh. It's Warren Buffett uh, spent hundreds and hundreds of hours interviewed by Alice Schroeder. He made his friends available to her. Uh-huh. So she wrote this 
basically, I don't know, 600 page book about Warren Buffett. And as a value investor, what I, you know, I should have been reading this book and trying to figure out Warren Buffett's secret, how he invests, etc. But I remember after I was done with the book, I realized in a very important respect, I don't want to be like Warren Buffett. Mm. As you mentioned, he, yes, he was incredible. He's incredibly successful financially. And as a human being, there is so much I learned from him about being a human as well. But he is so singularly focused on investing. He, it's, it's an obsession for him that he basically neglected his wife, who he loved yeah. dearly. He neglected his kids. And that's a regret he was, you know, he's going to have. He can't fix it. The problem is this. You can't go back and fix this. I'm sure he would give up 95% of his net worth if he, if he could go back and fix this, or all of his net worth probably. Um, and that's a regret. I would Luckily, I read it when my kids were young. So I realized I don't want to have that regret. And that changed of how I spend time with my kids. Right. For readers who don't, who aren't sort of investment nuts, so I didn't read the book you're writing, but I read Roger Lowenstein's book about him. And the shocking thing to me about it was he, I think it's probably a neurological thing with Warren too, but he basically was happiest upstairs in his attic reading company reports and thinking and talking to his buddy, Charlie Munger. And his wife at some point was like, enough. And she got up and left, moved to mm -hmm. Southern California. He didn't divorce her, moved to Southern California, lived off of his dough until she died. Uh, and then she set him up with a girl from her his dance class to move in with Warren. And mm -hmm. so you think about this, like what's on the outside, the advertising versus what the reality is. Like, oh. interesting. And I, think the, and I think the lesson is, I think the kind of the punchline of the chapter was a lot of times we look at other people and we want to have what they have. Yeah. Well, and this is where the Jewish wisdom comes from. You know, it basically says, if you envy somebody, yeah. you want to do it holistically. Yes. You basically just so in other words, do you so you want to have 95 billion dollars what Warren Buffett had? Yep. Well, you have to therefore you're going to have to be the same father he was, same husband he was. So therefore, once you start looking at what somebody else has, you say maybe I don't want it because the cost of getting it was too high. I Dan's word here on I don't know if you listened to that podcast, but he's uh he, he has an unbelievable story that I won't try to summarize in one thing, but he got through it by really immersing himself in Stoic philosophy. It comes up in your book as well. Why do you think investors are attracted to it so much? Uh, so I'm not sure it's a, I'm not sure it's investors. I think it's the <laughs> pandemic created three fads, and I hopefully hopefully they won't be fads: chess, uh -huh. stoicism, and pickleball. Uh -huh. And I find that I embraced all three of them without knowing they were friends. <laughs> but I embraced them. I didn't know that I was kind of because I'm, I am usually, been a, been a value investor. You're kind of contrarian, mm -hmm. so I'm not. I'm kind of embarrassed that I embraced three, you know, you know right. three friends. But when I did it, it wasn't. I wasn't. Doing you were something. early. Yeah, I was early. Yes, I was. Setting, I was creating the fat. I guess. Well, first of all, I think the reason you can argue that investing and stoic philosophy connect so perfectly because one of the central concepts of stoic philosophy is dichotomy of control. Uh -huh. And so let me just talk about this in a second. Um, so first of all, let's talk about stoic philosophy a little bit. Okay. Stoic philosophy, 2,000-year-old philosophy, 
Uh, and the, most of the writings we read today are basically by three people. Seneca, mm -hmm. who was a playwright, politician, uh, advisor to emperor. He was a banker. He was Goldman Sachs before Goldman Sachs. In fact, he was a Renaissance man 15 years before, 15 centuries before Renaissance. Uh, Marcus Aurelius, who was an emperor of Rome, the most powerful man in the world, period, at the time. And Epictetus, a slave. What's incredible about that philosophy, when you think, when you say the word philosophy, you start thinking about a bunch of skinny white men who say things you don't understand and you can't really relate <laughs> to that. So what philosophy means actually just love of wisdom. That's all it is. Stoic philosophy, it's basically, it's like an operating system for life that's, com that's completely secular. So if you're, if you, you know, so if you're secular, you can use it, you can apply it. If you're religious, you can apply it. In fact, a lot of it is commonsensical. All, all it is just put into very, you know, it's kind of in a very nice framework. So when I stumbled on the Academy of Control, which I'll talk about in a second, it really clicked with me. And as we started to read more and more, I realized, yes, it is 2,000 years old, mm -hmm. but humans have not changed. Right. We really haven't. We have fancier toys, et cetera. But like, I'll give an example. Like this is Seneca spends three paragraphs in one of his essays, basically complaining how people are wasting their time on frivolous things. And this is before Facebook, iPhone, and Netflix. So it just, so we haven't changed. But anyway, um, so they, let's talk about the Academy of Control. So it's a, it's a very simple concept, but it's so incredibly powerful. And it basically says this, there are certain things that are up to us, mm -hmm. they're internal to us, mm -hmm. and, and certain things aren't, they're external. What's most important that you realize how few things are up to us. Mm. What up to us is basically our values, our behavior, our actions. That's it. Everything else is external. You're driving to work and you're hitting red lights. Uh, that's not up to you. What's mm -hmm. up to you is how you react to that. Mm -hmm. So you're, it's, you know, so how does it relate to investing? Oh my God, think about it. All is up to me as a value investor is my process, is my analysis, the diligence, the frameworks I use. Once I bought the stock, it's not up to me. It's not up to me if there is it's going to be war in Ukraine. It's not up to me if the Fed is going to raise rates, low rates, these kind of things, or what the market decides to think about this sector. So that's external. Mm -hmm. And so once you realize this, then all you try to do is focus on your process and just try to improve your process, realizing that in the short run, the outcome is completely random. name of the podcast is things i didn't learn in school okay. so if you step back from all of this your value your immigration the, the the books you've been writing and stuff like that so what would for listeners be sort of like your biggest biggest thing you haven't learned in school i think it's what's one thing to be i did not learn it's called the importance of eq mm -hmm. emotional intelligence mm -hmm. the importance of being kind to other people mm -hmm thinking about how you interact with other people. I was not taught those, you know, those things in school, you know, kind of learning to read body language of other people when I'm interacting with them. So those are the things, kind of the softer side of, mm -hmm. in, you know, kind of, of life. I wish I did. 
And I mm-hmm. wish my parents taught me more. Like, again, I'm not complaining about my parents because I'm blessed with my parents. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that my, my parents taught me that, and I wish they did. Or at least I, you know, I wish I read about this. In fact, I read Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends, when I was 18 years old. It was one of the first books that was, like when the, when the uh, Iron Curtain fell. Yeah, I remember it was very popular, yeah. It's huge, it was huge. And that was a fad. Yes. And I read it and it was like, my God, what a horrible book. Like uh-huh. really. And then I read it maybe 10, 15 years ago again. And I was shocked how great that book was. Hmm. Because see, my teachers at school in Russia, they were graded how well they knew the subject. Right. And how well they can explain it. But one thing I realized, humans, they're not computers. Mm-hmm. The data has to be repackaged in a way for us mm-hmm. so that it clicks with us. Knowing something well and at the same time communicating well are two different things. Mm-hmm. When my teachers taught me, they really had zero consideration about if what they were doing boosted my confidence or lowered my confidence. My self-perception of myself when I was in Russia was incredibly, incredibly low. Because my teachers decided at some point that I'm a C student. And therefore, it didn't matter if I knew the subject well or horrible, I would still get a C. Which is like, I, like it was not an experiment, but now I look at it as an experiment. As in the exit exam, I basically, it was an essay. And I had, I cheated. I'm a kind of embarrassed to say now, but I did. Very common in the Soviet Union. So it means something different there than here. Anyways. Yeah. So what I basically had, I had another teacher. I knew the, essay, the topics of essays. I had another teacher, English teacher, right? I mean, a Russian teacher. You know, it was a Russian teacher write an essay. Basically, I snuck in that essay and turned it in as my, as my exit essay and still got a C. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that that proves it to you because so I'm not, I'm not sure they even read it because right. they decided I'm a C student so that's probably an F essay so they were doing me a huge mitzvah by giving me a C so but that's you know but that's that that's what what probably happened and I tell you when I came to the United States I flourished because and I know we f- joke a lot about the uh, participation pr- trophies etc. Yeah. But I think there is a value in this because it gives kids confidence uh-huh. and believe in themselves. And I think there is a lot of value in this, tremendous amount, a lot of value in this. In fact, as a parent, as a parent, that's something we should be so conscious of that we make sure that our, tell our kids that if they work hard, they can achieve anything. And I try to do this all the time with my kids. Yeah, I remember one of the first words I would hear when I was in Russia on the playground any time you were going by was Nilsia, Nilsia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically saying you can't do it. Yeah. Vitaly, thanks so much for being a guest on Things I Didn't Learn in School. For those of you who want more of these types of podcasts, go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and you can get the rest of our uh, conversations. 
thank you for listening to today's episode. We're genuinely touched by all the support. If you want to see more of this type of content, sign up to my Substack on paulpodolsky.com and become a paid subscriber that helps supports the team. Uh, you could also submit a review to Apple Podcasts, which draws other listeners to this. If you have any questions, you can email me, paul at paulpodolsky.com and follow me on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Thanks so much. Today's podcast was produced and edited by Dave Manahan.